Alrighty, guys, welcome back to Liberty Diner Dish. I am Ken. I'm Michelle. And we're about to dive right into a special episode with our special guest. Scott Ball. Thank you for being here with us, sir. Well, it's an honor. Thank you very much for having me. Well, we want to, again, we want to thank you for being so gracious and possibly bored enough to um, (laughs) sit with us (laughs) and chat with us, especially about a show and a character that you've been discussing for two decades now. So let's just start there. Uh, People still want to hear you talk about Ted and and Queer's Folk 20 years later. How is that for you? Oh, it's great. I mean, look, you get a lot of different jobs in your life as an actor. It's a very rare one that matters enough to people that 20 years later, they still have questions about it, that it still matters to them, that it finds new generations all the time and helps people in their lives. I mean, it's, you know, especially with television, you don't often get people coming up and saying, thank you. You know, this made a difference in my life. You're doing this show as opposed to, yeah, that was really funny, that thing you did. You know, this is something that, <laughs> yeah. that really matters to people. And that's why it's stuck around for uh, for this long. So it's uh, it's wonderful. Yeah. So what do you think it is about the show that makes people continue to show up for conventions and launch podcasts about about this show? Sure. Well, uh, I think it's, you know, it's, there's a great combination to this show where, you know, there's the soap opera aspect of it where people get thoroughly caught up in the romantic triangles and entanglements and the lives of these people. And combined with the groundbreaking nature of the show that I think, and I don't know what it's like to watch it brand new. Maybe Ken, you could talk about this, what it's like to watch it brand new now, 20 years after we made it. If you're able to have that perspective of, wow, I can't believe they were talking about this 20 years ago, or if you're just seeing it as a fresh thing now that, that I don't have a perspective on, but you know, the fact that this was the first to bring these things up and sadly there's still very little like it, yeah. out there uh, on television that is talking about these issues, which again, sadly, are still prevalent. We, we you know, we were hoping we would be, you know, dated by now. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, no. sadly, this stuff still matters and still resonates in that way. So I think that the political kind of rock and roll nature of what we were doing, combined with the romantic aspects of it that, you know, that soap opera, for lack of a better word, aspect of it. I think that's what keeps people hooked on it over and over again. And it's, you know, it gives you this good mashed potato, comfortable kind of feel where you want to go back and go through it again. You know, especially you remember the roller coaster ride you went on with it the first five years you watched it. Mm -hmm. And there must be things in people's lives where they feel like, no, I want to feel that again. I want to go through that again or find something new in it I didn't see before. Exactly. Uh, I would definitely say you guys were trailblazers um, in the American market um, for that type of show. And like you stated, I think a lot of the topics are still relevant today, Mm -hmm. um, 20 years later. Um, I heard this show described as lightning in the bottle. You know, (laughs) Uh, it's just so much going on. Um, At one point, at one point, did point did you and the rest of the crew um, realize that you guys, you know, had some type of like phenomenal um, going on right now? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's, you know, because we filmed it up in Toronto and most of us, you know, it was our first big series. We really were in a bit of a bubble up there as we worked on it. Mm. I know for me and and the producers, uh, Ron Cowan and Dan Littman, you know, the, the showrunners and the main writers for the show, they 
had some kind of evil plan where they didn't want us to see any footage from the show for a very long time. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we got up there in July of 2000 and we started filming what was the pilot, which was really the first three episodes. So it was a three hour pilot. That was the only script we saw. That's what we auditioned with. That's all we knew before we took the jobs for the show. So we shot it like a three hour movie, those first three episodes, and it was very intense. And then we got into the, you know, the further episodes and then everything became new. We didn't know where things were going to be going. I, yeah, I got up to Toronto. I found out, you know, in the British version of the show, after the third episode, my character died in the yeah. British version. I, so I wasn't even 100% sure what was happening yeah. with my character <laughs> after I heard that. So I was happy to read in the fourth episode that I woke up. But um, uh, so we just worked and we just put our heads down. We started to get a bit of a hint when people from Showtime, from some of the executives from Showtime came up. And this was probably about when we were filming maybe the fifth or sixth episode of the show. And they were letting us know, okay, press is going to start coming up. Because now we're getting into August and into September. And the show was going to be premiering in December. Mm -hmm. And uh, a wonderful writer named Charles Kaiser, who wrote a very a seminal book called The Gay Metropolis. Mm -hmm. uh, a seminal book in gay American gay history. Uh, and he was given the job of doing the very first interview with us for New York Magazine. He was given the scoop, the big premiere thing. So he was going to be coming up and all the executives from Showtime came to talk to us and let us know, okay, press is going to start coming. We had things lined up with Newsweek, with Time Magazine, with you know, Entertainment Weekly is coming up. Like this big. juggernaut was going to start. <laughs> and you know, he said, you have choices you need to make about how you're going to represent yourself. You're going to be asked some very personal questions about your sexual orientation, all these kind of things, I'm sure. So you really, and so it started to sink a little bit like, oh, whoa, wait, all the, everybody's coming up here. And then a few weeks later, I think we were filming the seventh episode of the show. They finally let us see, they had edited together those first three episodes of the pilot. And they finally said, okay, you, we're going to let you watch this. And we all went over to Hal Sparks' apartment, actually, because he had a big-ass TV. And <laughs> I can say big-ass. Uh, and so we all gathered at his place to watch the pilot. And kind of like all of you, I'm sure, in watching those first episodes, that dynamic had never been seen on television before. That energy, the mm -hmm. musculature of the camera movements, those mm -hmm. ramping shots, mm -hmm. all those scenes in the club, all that energy, you know, like the first time, you know, Brian Kinney appears on screen. And this is just our stupid friend, Gail, we know, you know, <laughs> and we've done scenes with him and stuff and we have fun, you know, we know he's a good actor, but the first time I saw him on screen, I'm like, holy fuck, he's a rock star. Like we had no idea. And then, right. That first sex scene between uh, him and Randy was mind-blowing, <laughs> yeah. you know, mind for us to watch as well, too. Like, this is our show. And and then even for me, of like, gay people can have sex face-to-face. -face. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all these things, I, you know, it, it, it blew my mind. And that's, for me at least, and, you know, others may have different stories to tell when you speak to them. But that, for me, was the first time I went, oh, my God, this is something really special and unique. And then, you know, maybe when we had our actual first premiere of the show down in New York, later on, the world premiere of it, and the audience reaction, and, uh, and all that stuff, then I started to get it a little bit more. But it was really, for me, it was the build of all this press that was going to be coming, and, and the importance of the show because of that, combined with getting to see what it looked like for the first time, that's when I knew 
this was something really special and unique. And it upped for me the feeling that I had a great responsibility. Mm-hmm. And we all felt that. Like this, the groundbreaking nature we got early on, we, when we did realize we had a great responsibility to tell these stories accurately because it's the first time they're going to be told in this way. Right. Uh, and for the LGBTQ community, we had a great responsibility to do it right. Yeah. Um, I've heard Dan and Ron talk about the audience of the show and a large portion of it turned out to be straight women. Do you have any kind of thoughts on why that might've been the case? Yeah, that was, I mean, that was the big surprise. And that's where, uh, again, you, you kind of learn information slowly. And, you know, one of the things we figured out was that Showtime was really kind of planning to make us their Sopranos because they, you know, at that time, HBO was just, blowing Showtime out of the water, quite frankly. I mean, they had The Sopranos, they had Sex in the City, and mm-hmm. Showtime hadn't found that thing yet. And they were trying these niche shows to kind of find where that pocket would be. They had uh, the television version of the great film Soul Food. So they had uh-huh. an all-African-American show. Then they had another show called Resurrection Boulevard, which was an all-Latino show. And mm-hmm. then they had us as their other niche show. And we're the ones that became their number one hit because of straight women, I think, because I think they thought this was a show for the gay community. And when straight women came to it, it doubled the audience they thought they would get and became this huge, huge success for them. And again, kind of going back to what I said earlier as to why it's lasted this long, I think, you know, straight women responded to the soap opera aspect of it, you know, and it was, you know, for the most part, hot guys taking their clothes off all the time and getting it on. And, you know, the graphic sexual nature of the show, I mean, usually up to that point in time, especially on Showtime or, you know, when I was, you know, in my 20s or 30s living in Chicago and I would get Cinemax for free, you know, we called it Skinemax because mm-hmm. they have all these kind of softcore R-rated movies right. they play late at night. And it was always, you know, women in the shower soaping their breasts up because they get so dirty. Like, that's what... <laughs> <laughs> that's what sexy TV was. And this was the first time this was guys showing it all. Exactly. And the, and then, and the only thing like that out there. And again, not in a gratuitous way, it was all storytelling sex, but women hadn't got, they hadn't had that opportunity. And again, learning experience for me, I didn't know, you know, as much as straight guys like seeing girl on girl action, that straight women like seeing guy on guy. action. So, (laughs) so, Uh, I think, you know, again, for the emotional resonance of the stories, that love triangle, especially, you know, in that first season, it just, you know, with with Justin and Brian and Michael, Mm -hmm. it just hooked people in, in a way, uh, women especially, that they they couldn't get enough of it. So I think all those elements and that was a surprise to to Showtime for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because it showed men falling in love in a different way than completely different way than we were used to seeing that, you know, right. it's kind of my take on it. Yeah. Um, that's right. No, I think that's, that's, that's very wise. Like it, it is a different kind of thing and showing a vulnerability in a way mm-hmm. that you don't get to see anywhere else. And and especially back in 2000, you didn't get to see anywhere else. Yeah. yeah. 
And one thing I loved about the show, too, it just showcased um, how diverse the gay community is. When people think of gay, they think about, you know, the real feminine type. But when you look at Brian Kenny, you know, you get someone who could easily step into the, you know, normal straight world and could fit right in. So, I mean, I loved how diverse those were. And I think that's another thing that made a big connection with the audience as well, because it wasn't just stereotypical. Oh, I got to wear, you know, bright, loud clothes. No, no shade to Emmett. Because I love- <laughs> no, we <Yes>. love Emmett. <laughs> But I mean, but even just... but even you know Peter's portrayal of Emmett, even I mean, it's a, it's a great point, Ken, and it's really true. And again, we get a lot of flack, which I 100% get for the lack of diversity of our show in a lot of ways. And we can talk about that, you know, later on, I'm sure. But you know, you look at what how Peter played Emmett, and you've never seen a Nelly Queen like that. Like Emmett would kick your ass. Yes, <laughs> yes, you know. Mm-hmm. Emmett had your back. Emmett, you know, was not going to be pushed around all the time. Sometimes he was. Sometimes he could be a silly Nelly queen. Right. But other, but he had a strength to him where he would fight back, you know. Yeah. So, uh, that, and that was unseen before. And as, you know, Dan and Ron would say all the time, prior to Queer as Folk, all you ever saw, gay characters were either clowns or they were eunuchs, mm-hmm. right? You know, they were either the goofy sidekick or you could never imagine them kissing, let alone having sex. Right. right? And that's what they hope to change. And yeah, and, you know, again, some of the the pushback we got from the series in a lot of ways, it wasn't from the straight community. We thought, you know, like the Mormons were going to come after us. We thought, <laughs> you know, there would be all sorts of the Christian League or whatever, you know, even if it was just around the notion of a 17 going on 18 year old boy having a relationship with a 29 year old man. Mm-hmm. but. That didn't really come. I mean, more of the pushback came from the gay community. And a lot of it was they didn't like their secrets being told. And they didn't like, they were uncomfortable with a character like Brian who could make the gay community seem dangerous somehow. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Representation is a tricky game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I understand where they're coming from, but because ninety nine two thousand, uh, it's not the world that we live in now. So I think the gay people right. were just really afraid to step out of their comfort zone. You know, and was like, oh, you're exposing us now. You know, like, oh, people are gonna come after us. We're gonna be bashing things like that instead of yeah. Yeah, accepting it and praising it. I mean, I right. love the show. Well, uh, and then there's you. that. Yeah. I think it's the same thing with minorities. You know, you want more representation on screen, but then you're very controlled in how you want that to look. You know, it's like, well, no, not all of us are like that. And I don't want them seeing that. It's kind of like what you were saying, like the secrets get told. And it's like, well, I don't want people to take that the wrong way. They don't have the right context. And so. Mm -hmm. Right. And when, and when you're the first, again, it's understandable. And you know, where people have a hunger, they, there was such a hunger to see representation on TV. And we're still going through this Mm -hmm. now with, you know, every minority group there is, everyone, they just want that representation in the media. And the problem from that hunger, of course, is that once it's there, everybody wants to see. And as you know, I mean, there's a reason it's a rainbow flag. Yeah, yeah. There are so many different varieties and types. And and I remember uh, after the first, you know, we spent nine months shooting the first season So we went from July until March or April of the following year of 2001. And before we could even go home from Toronto, they sent us out on a tour because the show had started airing already and was already Mm -hmm. a success. And they sent us out on a tour to college campuses. I remember we were exhausted. I mean, we were so tired, but 
before we could actually go and sleep in our own beds at home, we had to go on this college campus tour. And we went down to, I think, Tulane in New Orleans. I think Peter, Randy, and I went down there. Then a bunch of us went up to Berkeley. Mm. And I remember it was really confrontational. Like we got, you know, a, a bunch of people who were in the audience there really ripping into us. Like, where are the trans people? Where are the people of color? Oh. Where are all the kind of things? Wow. And we were kind of like we're just the cat, like we're just the actor. Right. Like, we, we hear you, but you know, we, that's where we, I mean, from the very beginning, we started getting that kind of stuff. And again, I get it. And, but the difficult thing of being first was the challenge it took just to get right. gay characters mm-hmm. in general on TV, like you're talking about in this multi-dimensional, diverse way was challenge enough. We couldn't like jump to right. all these other things. Plus, to be honest, we shot in Canada, in Toronto, and the talent pool up there is a fairly Caucasian <laughs> talent mm-hmm. pool. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was something that you had as a limitation when it came to casting casting characters as well, too. So today, you know, you do Queer as Folk today, absolutely, you have a trans person. You have, you know, all colors of the rainbow in there. Um, but back then, it was this was the story that was going to be told and it was about these characters and you kind of did what you did, but I, I get where people are coming from now because you're looking at it from a 20 years later kind of perspective. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I would love to keep talking about that because that's such a fascinating thing to me, but <laughs> I know we've got to move on. Uh, so let's talk about Ted Schmitz. How was Ted presented to you? I know you said you just got a little snippet of the script, like those first, that first pilot, but how was Ted presented to you? And then from that, kind of what backstory did you create for him? Well, you know, as, as you see him in the pilot, that's what I first read when I got the script. And I, I just instantly related to him. I mean, I, he, to me, and maybe it's just because I played him, I feel <laughs> this way, but he was kind of the universal character in the show. Like, I think I felt like he was the, the character that gay people could relate to straight people could relate to yes. I mean essentially bad sex is bad sex and, <laughs> and, and, and had a lot of that uh and uh you know I think where I where I was in my life at that point in time I related to him a lot uh I certainly understood self-esteem issues he was going mm-hmm. through self-loathing and stuff I mean a lot of him are things that I had worked through in my life but especially, and, and uh, I know I've said this before, but, you know, in moving to Los Angeles from Chicago, in Chicago, I felt like I was an okay, attractive guy, did you mm-hmm. know, okay in the dating world. And as soon as I moved to Los Angeles, it, it is just another food chain. Right? <laughs> and the, you know, I, so I remember reading that kind of first scene where they're at Babylon and he's standing at the bar and he's trying to chat up these hot shirtless guys were going yes. by. Mm-hmm. Going and they just keep walk by him and he's like, Yeah, I'm doing fine. It's okay, you know, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Muttering to himself. That I mean, literally like a week or two weeks before then, I had been at a party and that exact same thing had happened where oh. I had tried talking to <laughs> that like is you, hilarious. I was a ghost because I didn't have money or success or a really cool car. And in LA, mm. that's you know, it's it's a different thing than what matters in the gay clubs, but it's kind of a similar thing. And my self-esteem was just being eaten away at. So by mm-hmm. the time this came along and the script came along, I I just got the guy psychologically. And again, the description, you know, you get these things called the breakdowns, which 
the casting director puts out, which has, this is the description of the character. This is what we're looking for. And he was described as being chubby and balding and all this kind of stuff in the script and felt like, well, I don't, I don't know if I physically match that exactly, but I get psychologically what he's about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I benefited from the fact that I don't think Dan and Ron had a clear definition of who the guy was in their head. So I just went in and was like, this is my version of him. Yeah. And it could come from a really truthful, honest place because, again, I had felt these things. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think they they just were like, oh, yeah, that's it. And I think they found some benefit to him not being so thoroughly schlubby uh, yeah. that his lack of attractiveness comes from inside uh-huh. is something more interesting, I think. And... Yeah, so that that was it for me. I mean, I mostly I just really liked the guy. I felt badly for him, but I understood him completely. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was it. Uh, you just said, um, you know, you you tried to deliver it from a, a truthful place, and that's what resonates with me. I really feel like um, Ted's and actually the whole cast. It was very authentic. Uh, I feel like the the chemistry. It, it really seemed like you guys really were friends that you have been knowing each other for forever. And it, it just really came from a very genuine place. And I mean, it, it, it comes across on screen very well. Thank you for saying that. I, and uh, I agree. We got very lucky. And again, I think it's where we, we benefited from shooting up in Toronto. I think the fact that we all had to go up there and find our own apartments and start our own lives uh, and that we really were all we knew up there, this mm-hmm. group of people, we formed that relationship uh, fairly quickly. And I mean, we were just a bunch, most of us were just like theater nerds who had gotten this TV yeah. show, you know? And uh, so we had this very ensemble feel, like nobody felt like one or the other was the star. We all were in it together. We all understood the vulnerabilities we were going to be going through and that we needed each other's support mm-hmm. in this whole thing. And that that bonded us in the way, and that continues to this day. I mean, I you know, we talk. I talked to Michelle this morning. I mean, it's like we we still talk uh, all the time and are in touch all the time. And we're family. We became family. Uh-huh. And uh, and again, I think going the things that were asked of us to do in that show with each other to each other and <laughs> yeah. whatnot. You, you have know, to be, yeah, comfortable. Yeah, with you can like if I were, yeah, if I were to make the two of you go through that, you would be very good friends. <laughs> right. I mean, you've known each other since toddler, so it would be weird. But, you know, it's, um, yeah, you, it's, it took a great level of trust. And, and we all, again, because we had that responsibility I talked about of wanting this thing to be amazing, we all worked that. And with Ron and Dan as well, too, it was this very collaborative, especially the first season of the show, we would give script notes. We would get together with Ron and Dan say, hey, what about this? And, you know, and really work on it and try to elevate the material even Mm -hmm. if we could just really we all were coming from the same place with it all and so you know actually in a weird way when Sharon Gless joined us because she came in she didn't start filming I think till we had already been filming a couple weeks Mm. uh, for when she first shot her first scene and we were a little worried like is she going to fit in you know how she you know because we had already already formed this thing and fortunately she's Dame Sharon Gless so she's (laughs) Gave her a big hug and she was right on board, you know, because she's extraordinary. But uh, I think that was hard for her, too, to come in. At, it was kind of like coming into school two weeks late. And yeah. Uh-huh. Friendship, you know? 
Yeah. Okay. So, um, kind of talking about what you were saying with Ted's character, I think it was you, uh, a quote by you that I read in the Queer's Folk book that was done for like the first three seasons. Uh, but maybe it wasn't. We're going to give you credit for the quote anyway. <laughs> but uh, the quote was. Yeah, the quote was something like, uh, Ted is always looking for something. He's that kind of person, definitely when we meet him in season one. So what do you think he's looking for in when, when we do find him at season one? Well, I think when you find him, uh, you know, I, I think, and I don't want to spoil for, for Ken. I, I feel like I don't know what I should talk about. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I've been digging. Go ahead. <laughs> I try to stop him, but he won't listen. You know, I think what he's searching for, even if he doesn't know it, is eventually his self-love. Mm-hmm. But when you first meet him, what he thinks he's searching for is someone else to fulfill him. A cute, young, blonde mm-hmm. boy who yeah. will love him and adore him and who he can love and adore, who will be his other half. And, you know, that kind of, which, again, I relate to that. I had, there's times in my life that that was my notion of what a romantic ideal was too. You should find this person who you could be on a desert island with and be absolutely fine. And there, you know, that other half, my soulmate, all that kind of stuff. He's looking for someone else to teach him to love himself. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. his journey through the whole, you know, five seasons is finally eventually getting to a place where he realizes I don't need anybody else. Yeah. I want to say something off the, on the backside of that. Like, I do think that definitely in the beginning, Ted's a bit of a fatalist and he's not much of a risk taker, you know? Uh, and so, you know, when we first meet him, he has this crush on Michael. It's kind of a secret crush. And so I feel like it stemmed from that. And then not going into too many details, but later on, I don't think it's the same case with uh, Emmett. Like, um, mm-hmm. do you think that's from a different place or kind of what makes Ted turn to Emmett? At one point? I think, you know, again, I think Ted and, and where I think a lot of people relate to him and, and, you know, still come up to me and say these things. I think he's, because he's looking for it so hard, mm-hmm. always that, you, can't see it. you know, it kind of goes from one thing to another with him, mm-hmm. right? And so I agree. I think his thing with Michael uh, is very genuine and I think very uh, right in a lot of ways, you know, because, you know, Michael is like a kid. It's, you know, he, he's, you know, and that going with Ted's kind of pragmatism and his kind of anal nature, uh, his Germanic side of being wanting things very precise. Mm-hmm. There's something, you know, of a caretaker in him that kind of, would want to take care of Michael and and have all those things with him. Um, But I think his thing with Emmett, I think it came again from where he was at at that point in time, it was this kind of thunderbolt kind of moment where he was the dear, you know, it's his best friend. And because Ted has been so focused on the physical for so long, you know, of finding these young, younger guys who he's physically attracted to so much, it seemed to make sense all of a sudden that like, I've been going about this all wrong. I need to like, what's most important is the friendship aspect. Mm -hmm. And here's my best friend. You know, I love him dearly. And I think he confuses that a little bit. I mean, obviously they ended up having a, a great physical relationship as well too, eventually (laughs) once they got through a few steps, but, uh, yeah, I think it was him trying to just like, I need to do something different because what I'm doing is not working, you know? And I think, again, we've all kind of gone through that where right. we're, I'm still single. How is this possible? I must be doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Let me change my thinkings. And again, I've gone through those things of getting crushes on friends and, you know, 
not always the best, the best thing, but uh, yeah. And as far as, you know, I, obviously again, because Ted hasn't learned the lesson he needs to learn about loving himself, he falls prey to, even though he's with Emmett and you see, you start to feel like, Oh yes, this is, this couple's going to work. And I know there's, you know, in the fan base, many people who still wish Ted and Emmett had stayed together. Um, But it wasn't enough for Ted still, you know, Emmett's Emmett's love and affection for him wasn't still enough for him to get rid of the pain and get rid of the voices in Mm. his head and to feel beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, drugs, Sadly, took took the so, place of yeah. that. So. Ted's story is about growth. I feel like his story is always a, a, a personal growth with, from within. Well, I feel like that's that's for all of them. You know, mm-hmm. they kind of all had some growing to do. So, kind of before we dig deeper into that, like, um, were you guys all aware of the nuances to the characters and the plot lines, and even the set design and all of that, or was it later? Um, like, or did you did you guys discuss kind of the psychology of the characters and in all of that? Uh, I don't know if we had any specific discussions. We, you know, you get to a point when you're working on a series where when it comes to the writing of the show, you know, the writers have very strong ideas, but there comes a point where the character is kind of entrusted to you. You are the guardian of that character. So there were certainly times where I know from my, I'll just speak for myself, where I would read a script. And again, the way a production works, it's a steamroller that just keeps going. And you don't, again, they were very strict with us. We didn't get scripts until about a week before we shot an episode. Mm -hmm. So you'd be in the middle of shooting episode three of a season and during a lunch break, you know, and and maybe three days before you finish, three or four days before you finish episode three, you would get the script for episode four. And the next day, so maybe three days before you finish filming the episode, at lunch, you would do a table read of the episode. Mm-hmm. And so you're really like, you're trying to keep up with the story as as well as the audience, right? right? As the actors. And they also, you know, Ron and Dan also felt very strongly. They didn't want us knowing what was coming for the most part. There were occasional storylines, we can get into that, where they would give you a heads up, hey, this is coming. But for the most part, they didn't want you, their belief was, they didn't trust us not to foreshadow things. Like if we knew something was coming down the road, we might in our performance of an episode kind of hint at that, that this Mm -hmm. is tough. They Mm -hmm. didn't want that at all. They didn't want to give us, you know, the, the ammunition for that. So they would just not let us know what was coming. And, you know, so for me, it was every week getting a script and kind of peeling the pages back very slowly to see what (laughs) awful thing they were going to do to Ted in the next episode. But, um, (laughs) So we, so we didn't necessarily know where things were going all the time, but in reading the script and getting it and doing the table read, if we felt something was like, I just don't get, this doesn't seem like Ted would do this. I remember there were, there was an episode, I want to say it was in the first season. I can't remember where, but Ted started getting all of Brian's cast offs. Brian, for whatever reason was, I don't know why he was. Yeah. It's season one. Yeah. I can't remember when it was. And, but uh, but he was he was just giving Ted all his cast offs, and again for me, my approach when you ask about backstory and things like for me Ted was this hopeless romantic right, and I didn't see him as a guy who was just going and having casual sex all over the place right because I was basing that on my notion Scott's notion of what 
being a hopeless romantic is about. And I've felt that way. I've never been someone who can, I never had just casual, casual sex before. I have to like either convince myself I'm in love with that person <laughs> or actually be in love with them. Right. And, uh, and so I was bringing that to Ted and, you know, Ron had to kind of sit me down and be like, let me explain to you how things work in the gay culture. Oh. <laughs> you know? And that's why I'm pretty sure it was in the first season. Cause it was a big mm-hmm. learning moment. I was like, Oh, okay. Cause I was just like, it felt so false to me that Ted would not just be sleeping around with random guys. Mm-hmm. He's looking for that one beautiful boy who's going to, you know, um, so we did have that ability to talk to them about those kind of things. And, uh, and they would listen to us if it wasn't something stupid, like me saying Ted wouldn't have sex with me. <laughs> yeah. um, and for me, I love it. That's what collaboration is about. Costumes as well. Sometimes you'd see a costume and you'd go, oh, okay. Now, like, it changes everything I feel yeah. about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the only thing there, I, I know Peter has told this story because I, I got up to Toronto first before everybody that first season and that summer just because I was nervous about finding an apartment and I wanted to <laughs> get a jump on things. So when they picked me up at the airport, the first thing they did before they brought me to the hotel was they brought me to the studio to meet with the wardrobe person and start doing a fitting. And one of the first outfits they put me in because the costume designer who didn't last very long, (laughs) she a lovely woman, but she put me in like leather short shorts. Oh, one of those kind of leather vest kind of things. Oh, like you were a leather daddy. Okay. She had gone to like one pride parade and saw some guys oh, walking around. Yeah, right. And so there's somewhere there are some Polaroids, you know, because you take Polaroids to show the artists <laughs> what they look like in the costumes. And there are some Polaroids of me looking really miserable. Because oh. that was not how I saw this guy at all. And, oh my. And it's my first time on it being a lead on a series. And I'm the first one up there and it, Canada, they're also nice, and I was like, I, you know, <laughs> it's not quite how I saw them. She's like, yeah, yeah, they're just ideas, just ideas. Like, oh, oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> other than that, generally, it was great to see what what costumes. You know, Patrick Antosh came up with for us. You know, it fed Peter so much that certainly seeing the the crazy things that Emmett got to wear, yeah. those kind of things can help you find some kind of new grounding with your character in certain scenes. But we. Uh, you know, we were listened to, but we, you know, we were not the final answer on anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess kind of what I was coming from on that, and you touched on it, but, you know, in doing a podcast, we found so many subtle things to mm-hmm. to provide commentary on because there's so much more than, you can watch it on the surface level or you can really dig into it. And so, you know, that's kind of what we've been trying to do. Um, yeah. But- and, and we would do that too. I mean, you know, I, I you know, again, everybody has different approaches as actors, but I think, I remember specifically where I was at the time when I was working on Queer as Folk. I was very much into if something seemed like, oh, I know exactly where they're, what they want for this line. And it wasn't out of sense of being contrary. I just wanted to be interesting. I would try to find an opposite way. So if I could tell they wanted a line to be really schmaltzy or sentimental, mm-hmm. I would find a way to undercut it with humor yeah. or, uh, or, or, or vice versa sometimes. I, I was always searching for ways to make things not be so pat or not mm-hmm. so like, well, that's standard TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I must have guessed right all the time because I never got notes from Dan Aron that I was doing. It. They were <laughs> offended that I was doing that with their- yeah. Great choices. Yeah, yeah. No, I say you nailed it. <laughs> you yeah. all did. Definitely, uh, great choices. So going back to something that Ken brought up about mm-hmm. uh, just the growth arcs for the characters, what would you say- were the areas of growth that the, the main characters had? Like, 
where do they need to grow? Like we've talked about Ted's and maybe some of the other people. And are there any storylines that you would like, there were other characters that you would like to see from Ted's eyes? Oh, interesting. Uh, I mean, I think for all of them, I think in some ways there was a growth in the nature of what is love, you know, and what does it mean to love and to be loved for almost all of them, I feel like. That was a big part of the growth process. And, and again, that's something unique or was explored uniquely in that this was, these were all members of the gay community because especially being gay in America, what you're told to feel about yourself, what you're told to feel about others is so defined for you uh-huh. that the struggle to figure it out for yourself, I think, is one that every, you know everyone goes through, and I think all the characters uni- almost universally went through that. You know, even Brian. You know, Brian, who had the strongest code of ethics of what he believed, right, right had to eventually bend and change, or he was going to get left behind. You know, uh, he was the one the most stubborn as far as changing or not changing. And he had to learn because of Justin for the most part. And, you know, and all the resolutions of their past, their family, all those things. Again, I think it's that kind of emergence from cocoons that they're all in at the beginning of this series because of, again, what they've been told to feel about themselves um, and finding that inner strength to break out for the for Melanie and Lindsay to form the family they do to get the hell out and move up to Toronto, yeah. all these things uh, for you know for Michael certainly to even in his boyishness to become a man and grow up and take responsibility and make a decision different than what his mom wanted him to do as far as loving someone who's HIV positive and starting a family with you know things they never thought they'd be able to have even you know all the natures of what they thought love meant, I feel like change. So I think that's, that's the biggest thing. And as far as storyline, I would like to go through, huh? That's a good one. I mean, I would have been interested in seeing Ted with a child somehow. It would have been interesting to see had he been, you know, chosen to be the father of, yeah, of Rebecca, was that her name? Baby yeah. Rebecca later on, I think. Um, you know, there's something there because again, you know, his connection with Melanie was very different than Michael's. So yeah, I don't know. There might've been something interesting there that would have been cool to explore to see what that did, what that would have done to him. Yeah. Good. So let's talk about your co-stars then. Are they as great in real life as I want them to be? <laughs> <laughs> they just seem like really good people. Yeah, I know. I want to hang out. <laughs> yes. The, the answer is yes, absolutely. They're yeah. all uh, extraordinary people. And again, very, very rare to have, you know, nine people as leads in a cast mm-hmm. who, you know, love each other as much as we all do. And again, it's very different than friendship for us. It's truly as family, you know, and like with any family, you have your fights, you have your things, you have your disagreements. And this one, you know, I don't want to be around that one, you know, every now and then, like all that stuff pops up. But in the end, your family were the only ones who have gone through this very, very unique experience uh, 
in the history of television, certainly. And, you know, so we're the only ones who know what it was like. Yeah. And that, that will always bond us, but no, all you can see, they're all very giving. We all, you know, the show gave us all a political voice Mm -hmm. and a soapbox to get on, whether as straight allies or being members of the community itself, you know, realizing you now, people look to you, you know, and you, again, you have that responsibility and it's one you gladly accept. And so, yeah, we still, you know, 20 years later, we're still doing another event coming up in October for the Tyler Clemente Foundation. You know, it's like people know that about us and I'm very proud of that. And that's because we're all good people. And I know if I, you know, I tend to be kind of the organizer of a lot of stuff that, that just, kind of happened in the dynamic of the family. And I know if I call or phone or write any of them and ask them to do something, they will 100% throw themselves into it. Wonderful. What was the vibe like on set? Was it like super professional or were the hijinks a little bit of both? I mean, like... Yeah, it's, it's you know, the, the blooper reels that are out there are pretty good <laughs> showing of what what things could be like. It was, you know, it was a combination. It was hard work. And we, you know, we were sometimes working 16, 18 hour days in the middle of winter in Toronto. <laughs> oh, the my. But uh, again, where we got fortunate was and where I don't know what it would have been like to shoot the show in Los Angeles with, you know, kind of crusty old Los Angeles teamsters working on our set. Our crew is again as much a part of the family as we all are and you know still in touch with all of them 20 years later as well um so we had a lot of fun uh when it was okay to have fun right and you know we knew when we needed to take things and we just took care of each other in that way we knew like when some release no pun intended was needed and (laughs) and and when we just needed to be there supporting one another through very difficult times, you know, I, uh, I remember when, when things were going very badly for Ted in the third season, as Ken will find out later that, um, you know, I had to come up with like a hand signal for crew members and, and my other friends and family members on the set in that way, because, it was harder for me to kind of come in and out of the mood of what was going on because it was such a dark time for the yeah. character. And it was just easier to stay in that place than, you know, every time he said cut to be like, Hey, everyone. So yeah. I would come on set and I, w- I would either give them a happy face or a sad face and they would know, okay, well, we're going to give Scott his space today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you could I mean, the show, one of its strengths, I think compared to some other, gay relationship dramas that are out there that will remain unnamed. You know, my sister, my sister who's gay, you know, she would have parties every Sunday to watch the show. You know, she'd have friends over and all, and she would watch the other show and she would, you know, she said, I just like your show so much better because it doesn't take itself so seriously. Like it's serious, but there's, it has a sense of fun about it. Yeah. It recognizes that there's a certain level of camp to what's going on here and a certain level of fun that, uh, that I just like so much better than these ones that are just so self-serious and uh, it's just, she couldn't take it. So yeah, that was the overall feeling to what our set was like our set you know and again from the very beginning we were very clear what we wanted our set like and because we were asking these poor 
Canadian guest stars to come on. And a lot of them, it's their first time on a TV show. And the first thing they're doing is, all right, you're going to be over in the corner blowing Michael and you're going to be getting rimmed by him, you know, and they're like, hmm. so we just, you have to laugh about, it. I mean, it's absurd yeah. that, you know, some of the things we had to do on the show and uh, you had to laugh at a lot of it. So there was a lot of cutting up, but you know, obviously when, when things were intense, how did you mentally prepare for, um, you know, those crazy scenes like that? The sex scenes, especially? Or? Uh-huh. Um, honestly, for me, through deflection, because I would spend all my energy trying to make the guest star feel okay, mm-hmm. that I wouldn't notice my discomfort. Right. Um, but as I said, I absolutely would, you know, when I would read the scripts, I'd be like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, poor Ted. What are they doing? doing? I mean, like, there should have been T-shirts that just said "Poor Ted." Yeah, like what everybody, like all the after the crew would read the script, they'd be like, "Oh, poor Ted." I mean, that's all you could say for so many years. They just put him through the ringer. Uh, So you know, I would read those sex scenes, and you know, you you get. I mean, I would be anxious about them, but again, being so ahead of the curve with these things, I mean, now as of just a year ago, really, they start having these intimacy coordinators on sets for all these shows, these HBO shows and Showtime shows where there's sexual content on them. Now they have these intimacy coordinators who choreograph everything. We didn't have anything like that. Uh, we were flying like there had never been a show like ours that was this graphic. But again, our producers, Ron and Dan and Sheila Hawken was one of our other producers up in Toronto they came up with this thing of having sex meetings and we would, before the scene was shot, the actors who were involved with them, we'd go into an office with the producers and the director and the director would say, all right, this is how I see the scene going. This is how I'm thinking of shooting it. I'm thinking of putting the camera here, here, and here. So we might see a little this, we won't probably see that. Mm -hmm. If we could kind of get your leg like that, we might be able to block that, like whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And it was laid out completely for us in a way to make sure we were comfortable. And if there was something we weren't comfortable with, you're not doing it. So we got really good at that. But even still, once you get on set and the robes come off and you have your cock sock on and you're just there with somebody you've just met, I, I'm going to make a joke. I mean, that's all you can, you can do is just kind of laugh about it. And so again, I would put my discomfort into making sure they were okay. And, you know, we were known maybe before Shit's Creek as being the friendliest set in Toronto. Like people loved coming to work on our show, despite these really difficult things we were asking them to yeah. do. People mm-hmm. loved coming to work on Careers Folk. And our crew stayed for all five years because they loved working on our show. That's yeah. awesome. Well, it seems like it's very immersive, not just the culture on the set, but also just for your roles, like for your characters, you really had to immerse yourself. I mean, you had to be Ted during that time. Like That's Gil right. had to be Brian, you know, um, during that time. So also kind of talking about that, I know that a lot of you guys have theater roots, even the the showrunners and possibly even some of the crew members. So mm-hmm. does that make for a different set or in a different final product when it's people who have these theater backgrounds? Yeah, absolutely. I think it helped a lot. I think again, especially in that first season, it's what let it be a collaborative ensemble, uh, kind of feel because that's what we're used to working on in theater. You know, you work with the playwright as they're developing the script and you learn like nobody is more important than anybody else. So that's the biggest thing is that it wasn't a Hollywood diva douchebag. Yeah. Yeah. Theater people tend to be a little more egalitarian in that way. And so it absolutely, absolutely helped with all that. And then kind of to your point 
um, Michelle, you were making just before that, combining that with having to be that character, that is what was different. And that, uh, again, I'll just speak for myself. That was the learning curve for me when you're doing theater, even if you're doing a six month run of something, you're taking your character on the same journey, the same arc night after night after night, and you can learn how to kind of compartmentalize it. When you're doing a television series, every day is a new day and you're, and you end up being that character again, sometimes 16, 18 hours a day. So you're living that life a lot longer than you're living your own life. And for me, the struggle was because Ted was so self-loathing and had so many uh, challenges emotionally, the trick was figuring out how do you leave that at the office? Mm-hmm. That was the the tough part for me. And it like, I would, it would take me sometimes two months when we would wrap a season. I'd be back in LA with my friends and uh, it would take me sometimes two months before I'd start feeling like myself again to kind of detox as it were. I mean, yeah. so yeah, it was, that was the challenge of coming from theater into a TV series is learning that and how to do that. I don't know that I ever hundred percent got it down, but um uh, yeah, that was, that was definitely a challenge. And I know, you know, Peter, Peter's told this story where I I think he initially had gotten called in for Ted to audition for Ted. And I don't know if it was a friend of his or somebody said to him, like, you don't want to play that guy. Uh. (laughs) Yeah. That's going to, that's going to mess you up if you play that guy. Yeah. So, um, (laughs) so he picked the much uh, more emotionally healthy character. Ted doesn't get the love that he deserves a lot of times. Um, <laughs> no, I like feel like it's because he goes through these very low lows, um, like sometimes too hard to watch. It's almost like secondhand embarrassment, you know, or yeah. secondhand pain or something. Yeah, yeah well, I, I, I think you're right, Ken. And I think there's, again, as I said, it's from when I first read the script and I felt like he was such a universal character, I think more people are Ted's than they are Brian's out there. Oh yeah. They don't want to admit it, but it's true. (laughs) Exactly. And that's the thing. They don't want to admit it, but I think they see more of themselves in him. They would all maybe like to be Brian, but most of them are Ted's maybe combination Ted and Emmett. But, um, (laughs) but uh, yeah, so I think that's an uncomfortable thing to look at sometimes. And, you know, I know like early on, uh, what was that? It was television without pity. Do you know what that was? It was, yeah. a, it was mm-hmm. one of the early blogs. Mm-hmm. Back when there were blogs. Remember blogs? Um, <laughs> yeah. Like back in 2000 when the internet was so new. And it was this really great snarky television recap blog where they would recap episodes of shows. And uh, I think they called Ted Eeyore all the time mm-hmm. on, <laughs> on television without pity. And so I think, you know, that was kind of the attitude about him out there was that he was just this kind of character. Um, again, because I think they didn't want that kind of guy seen, you know? And again, I think because they didn't want to admit that they feel that way themselves so often. Yeah, I 100% agree. But yeah, he's, I mean, it's interesting, like with time and especially with repeat viewing, I, Ted gets more fans, I feel mm-hmm. like. People feel like, I never really paid attention because they're too busy watching Brian and Justin screw Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's a, they're like, I fast forward to where they're like, yeah, get through this guy. <laughs> but 
when they take the time to go back through it, they go, oh my God, there's actually like, that's the guy who went through the most growth in the whole series mm-hmm. and went through the, had the most, like you never would have guessed this guy, this poor sad sack accountant at the beginning would go through the journey he goes through yeah. in five years. No one would ever have guessed that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely a five season study. I think someone else said on like insecurity, <laughs> you know, and yeah. uh, he's, he's under a microscope. His insecurities are under a microscope for five seasons, yeah. you know? So yeah, that's hard. <laughs> which, which is not always fun. And, you know, I, I mean, I watch their series. I watch you know, for long periods of times and there's, I'm just finally getting into shameless now. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, there's certainly characters like on that show. I love that show. I think they did. In some ways, I feel like, oh, they're kind of, they're kind of the uh, the stepchild of us in yeah. some ways. You know, again, working class people in this thing and this the the way they handle sexuality on the show, I feel is very similar. Where it's very story and oriented, and but they don't shy away from everything. And you get to understand the characters psychologically because of how they are sexually. Uh, but yeah, there's certainly characters on that show that I was like, oh god. Like, drive me crazy you know (laughs) that happens you know where there's characters that for whatever reason they just resonate or great because they remind you of somebody else uh or or what have you i'd had uh back when we were still filming the series there was a casting director who was he was the head of one of the major networks he was the head of casting for the whole network and my manager had been trying to get me just a general meeting with him so he could meet me and you know maybe put me in some of their shows and he kept refusing to meet with me. He was like, nah, I, yeah, I know him. I don't want nah, to meet with him. And she finally pressed him, why? What's going on? And he was a gay man. And he's like, yeah, I just, I don't know. I just find him really arrogant and kind of caustic. <laughs> and I just don't like him. <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? And so I went and met with him. And he was, you know, she said, let me send you his reel of stuff. And he watched the reel. And he's like, oh, my God, he's amazing. Oh, yes, yeah, send him in. And so I went and met with him. And he he was so apologetic. He said, I am so sorry. I'm so used to generally when people get cast in a series because it's so long running, you want to cast people who very much are their characters mm. because you don't want to run the risk that, you know, over a long period of time, they might not capture it all the time. So generally, what you see is what you get kind of thing. And I just thought you were an asshole. I just didn't like Ted. <laughs> And so I decided I didn't like you, and I am so sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, talking about Ted being kind of polarizing or not, you know, initially being a fan favorite, I do feel like he's a vital part. Like what you've said before, like this is very much an ensemble show, and that's definitely how we see it. Like everybody um, is important. So in his friendships with um, with all the other characters, what are some things that you – I guess, drew on from those. Yeah, I, it is interesting. I mean, because there certainly are some people you wouldn't think uh, he would be friendly with. I mean, even his friendship with Emmett is a, is kind of a little bit odd in its way. But uh, but when you get down to it, again, they offset each other. They both kind of meet each other mm-hmm. in in ways. They, they uniquely have the ability to tell things to each other that the other one needs in a way that they can't get from anybody else, to be honest with each other in a way. Um, yeah, and you know, and the the growth of the relationship between Ted and Brian went, probably went through the biggest change. And uh, again, there's an appreciation for the honesty. I mean, even going back to you know the fact that Ted made Brian 
the one to pull the plug on him if, yeah. <laughs> if come to that. You know, again, there's there's a pragmatism to both of them. Ted can make some really stupid choices, but he's, he also can be very pragmatic at times. And Brian obviously is that way too. Brian has mm-hmm. his sets of rule and that's it. And so they have this begrudging admiration for each other mm-hmm. uh, in that way that certainly goes through many, many struggles. Um, and Michael, I think, again, it's just that kind of, he's a loving, sweet guy. Ben, he had to come around to on because, you know, from jealousy, I think. And, and Justin, yeah, Justin is the one where it's the most nebulous. I mean, Randy and I made up a whole fake backstory off camera that, that Justin is a complete gold digger. And especially when, (laughs) when Ted started becoming successful, that, that Justin and Ted were totally having a thing going and Ted was buying him Rolexes. Uh (laughs) That is funny. That was our little off camera thing. But, uh, yeah, I think like I think you can with Ted. It takes a little bit, but you can earn his respect. It's not hard as hard to earn his respect as Brian. Yeah. But I think once you have Ted's respect, he he may not be super close with you. He may not share a ton with you, but he uh, he will at least hold you in a higher regard. Um, and yeah, and even yeah, I mean. I, there wasn't a lot of fleshing out of his and Debbie's relationship. Um, there's a lot of like side side relationships that I felt like we didn't really get into. And, you know, some of that is especially, you know, the third season of the show up until the last maybe four or five episodes, like it's, it was all Ted and Emmett. Like mm-hmm. we were kind of cordoned off. I and mean, that whole season was really interesting for us as actors. Cause we really didn't have many scenes with anybody else. It was really just us for almost every single scene. Uh, so yeah, like Lindsay, I don't know what Ted's relationship with her, like Melanie, there's one there. Uh, I, I think again, because of the, the pragmatic kind of nature of things and the tell it like it is quality that they both have. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that really answered your question. <laughs> no, no, it did. did. Yeah. yeah. Totally. What was it like leaving that character? It was hard. it was definitely challenging, but also a bit of relief, I think, you know, to kind of let him go. I still, quite honestly, I mean, there, I, it's not often that I go back and watch the show now. I'll, you know, I started doing it once we started doing fan conventions and things because there are entire storylines I do not even remember. <laughs> and I know y'all are going to like ask me questions about and Like I have no... I don't remember it. So I, I kind of have to go back through and there's still a lot of stuff of uh, if I'll stop and fully watch a Ted scene where I'll, I'll just start crying. Like my heart hurts for him so much, you know? So, uh, and there's still time just thinking about him uh, because, you know, you bring so much of yourself to bear from. So he's kind of represents that part of me. I've worked very hard to heal and until he gets to a point of healing in the show, it's very hard to watch him slash that part of me go through that again. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was definitely a relief to let him go, but also feeling like, God, I'm, I'll never play a guy like that again, you know? Well, um, until we get the reunion, of course. Until you get the reunion. Exactly. So that's, you know, that's, uh, you know, and that's as that's been a discussion for, you know, a number of years now, that's been one of the interesting things for me to even try to, that's something I haven't even been able to wrap my head around, like, what it'll be like to step back into that? Will I be able to? Well, I have I, a question about that. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. 
I just got really excited about something. Yeah, I, I hear uh, that. Well, I have two. It's a two-part question. Number one, um, so tell us what Ted is doing in season six, episode one, mm-hmm. and then the other part of the question. I know that you are a writer. So what? What's a character that you would write into into the show? Uh, as far as episode six, season one, I think it's you know, dealing with the dynamics of this relationship with Blake and what's that going to be and how how do we settle into that? And it'd probably be, I would see, you know, the earlier part of the, the sixth season being a thing of them trying to find a home together, trying to set up a life together and what is that going to look like and how is that going to be? And are they staying in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. even, you know? Yeah. Is it is it, are there too many triggers for both of them there as both being recovering addicts. Um, so that's where I see some of season six, season uh, episode one. Um, as far as another character I'd write into the show, I mean, I think, again, if you were to start the show up now, I think you would have to do it in a way where you're bringing younger characters into the show. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it's a question of, I think you have to do it that we're at least closer to the age we are now. I don't think you start it. I don't think you can start queer as folk, you know, pretending it's 2006. (laughs) No. (laughs) I, you know, too much has gone on and especially these last four years, so much has gone on that you have to deal with. And so I think you would have to be bringing in a younger group of queer kids mm-hmm. that somehow have interaction with this older generation. Um, you know, I told Peter, I don't know if you got to see, you know, he's become such an uh, incredible writer and director mm-hmm. himself now. And he did this film for yeah, uh, Freeform back in the winter. Uh, the thing about Harry, that is this extraordinary gay rom-com. That's just, it's a rom-com where they happen to be gay and that's it. And it's, you know, again, you think of if, gay kids when they were teenagers, you know, back in the eighties or nineties got to see something like this, what it would have done for them and hopefully what it's doing for them and now seeing it. But he did this wonderful job and it was just by happenstance. He wasn't going to be in it, but he's in it as this kind of older gay character who one of the younger you know guys in his twenties lives with as a roommate. And he, you know, he's much closer to Peter than Emmett, the character he's playing, but he yeah. still has, you know, that wonderful quality. And I said, just like the first scene they had together where they're just talking about things. I was like, that's the new queer as folk. I mean, it's this, you know, what does the current generation learn from the older generation? What does the older generation learn from the current generation? Yeah. And, uh, so it would be a bunch of characters I think that have to be in there and, you know, and finally give the show the, the true diversity it, you know, we weren't able to give it in the original version. Yeah. Um, I think that would be really exciting. And I think that would um, make it really relevant and, and you know, appeal to everyone to still, you know, because I know there are fans who they still want to know. They're still attached to the to the folks. You yeah. Know? <laughs> that means those folks. Yeah. And they want to know where are they now? What are they going through? What have they learned? How are they going to fuck up again? Right? <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, you need to give them that, but I think it, it very much you would have to have uh, 
new perspectives on things. Yeah, I agree with that. I heard, um, I listened to another podcast about Queer as Folk. Well, they were just doing like a special one episode on that, on Queer as Folk. And they, one of the uh, people was saying that um, she felt like Justin didn't have any understanding or respect for the shoulders he was standing on that allowed him to be who he was. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, that's because he was never taught that. That's not his fault. And so I definitely see what you're saying about being able to address some of those gaps. Like, um, Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And yet yeah, again, back in 2000, where Justin was as a 17 year old kid, there was no career as folk. Right. Um, he became that thing for so many people where they got to see, and that's the letters we would get from teenagers back in the early 2000s from kids in Nebraska saying, I don't, I don't even know another gay person. And now I feel like I'm part of a family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, of course, Justin didn't know the history and the, you know, all these things that the civil the civil rights that have been fought through he just knew he felt differently and needed to explore that right um so yeah it's it's a very different world now through because of shows like queer as folk and mm-hmm. social media and yeah you know things that went on during the obama administration and and gay civil rights moving quicker than any other civil rights movement has ever yeah. you know uh, all those things have changed things, and I think kids are a lot savvier now. I mean, you have gay media study courses now that mm-hmm. get into this kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a very different world, and you can't you can't blame Justin for not knowing those things because that's what it was like in two thousand. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, we've just given you know Ron and Dan, you know a whole like season script right there. So I just believe that they spent their quarantine writing, <laughs> <you know? laughs> writing this reunion season. <laughs> yes. They've been doing some writing. They've, uh, but uh, I don't know that it's been queer as folk, but they have been, they're still writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to choose to believe that it is. Yes. Okay, very good. I will yeah. not okay. Uh, so just a few more things. Um, so, well, actually I'm going to just kind of push the train off the tracks for a minute. Uh, so season five for some people ends rather abruptly and I won't get into the details of how it, of everything with how it ends. Spill the tea. Uh, no, 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 uh, no, no spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, so there's a, a something going around with the fans that Ron and Dan kind of slapped together this makeshift explanation for how they ended things because a lot of fr- fans weren't happy with that. But they don't strike me as the kind of men to be bullied by fans' opinions. And so I feel like the explanations that they've given are very genuine and very real. So anyway, can you just speak to kind of them as, you know, the integrity? Yeah, because yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly what it is they've said, but I would find it unbelievable if they came up with some false statement to make to placate anybody. Yeah. They have very strong opinions about the show and about these characters, certainly. Uh, I mean, they, you know, I talk about how hard it was for me to leave leave the character at the office. Those characters, especially in Ron's, those characters lived in his head. Right. And sometimes drove him crazy <laughs> for, for those five years. You know, he really, uh, he really understands them and gets them and has a point of view about them all. And he has a very strong, and again, you may disagree with it. That's great. But he, his opinions are ones he will fight for, you know, he, you know, I think there's a lot of Brian in him and uh, you know, we talked about it a little bit back in the summer and you know, this stuff is up on YouTube as well too. When I interviewed the writers, 
um, yeah, there's that kind of code of ethics that he has is is pretty strong of what he believes and what he was trying to get across with this show, especially on uh, kind of a fuck them attitude. Yeah. I think, you know, <laughs> they, you know, the show had that and they certainly have that attitude. So um, they were not writing the show specifically for the fans. They love and appreciate the fans, but it's a very difficult thing. And you could ask, I'm sure any writer, especially any showrunner for a show, you can't write it for the fans because right. you're never going to please everybody. And you're going to step away from whatever your truth is that you're trying. And, and people are going to sense that, that it's false. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, I think there was, you know, Hollywood certainly has set up this expectation that everything has exact an exact happy tied up with a neat bow kind of ending. And life isn't like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. Yeah. And so, yeah, we all have, we know what we want. We want this to happen. We want these people to stay together. We want that to happen. But sometimes that's not where, how it goes. And sometimes it's actually not the best things for the characters. Exactly. You no, know, for, those characters to continue to grow after the show, after the show is done, you know, for you to be able to understand, Oh, that character is going off to do something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I I know it's, it's been a hard thing over the years and I kind of try to stay out of it. I don't, I don't, cause honestly, I also like, I like gray things and I feel our show was pretty good at being gray. You know, Mm -hmm. it was neither the characters were neither black or white. They were sometimes amazing people. They were sometimes complete assholes the next second. Um, (laughs) And even in a lot of the storylines, you know, you could feel one or two ways about them. Uh, I was having a talk with a friend of mine last night about um, Michaela Cole's wonderful, I may destroy you show that was on HBO. I don't know if you've seen that. Part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I recommend watching it, but it's a show that kind of does that same thing. And we had a long discussion about it because there's, there's aspects of it. It's like, I don't know how I feel about that. And, you know, she's dealing with abuse and sexual assault in the show and sometimes in a humorous way, but it's, you know, the, the main character is one that you go back and forth on how you feel if you're with her or against her, or is, was that assault? Was it not assault? Various aspects of the show. And that's great. You know, but if you're looking for something to just have clean and easy answers for you, yeah, I don't think that's queer as folk. And mm-hmm. I'm unfortunate. And again, I get it. I get after you've invested all this time in something, you want it. You feel like you've earned it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, and I, you know, I wouldn't say I wouldn't feel the same way. But um, yeah, I I would say you know, for me, the only thing I would say is that it doesn't seem both ways seem right to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it doesn't seem false or dishonest that it ended the way it ended. Yeah. Well, and also they've given us five seasons, like you said, of being gray. And so to expect right. anything different is to expect a different show. Exactly. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, last few things, what can we as fans do if we want to bring more attention to the show? If we want to, if we want to make a real run at getting that reunion, <laughs> what can we, what can fans do? Who are the people we talk to? Yeah. Who are the folk? <laughs> that's a, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, I think, you know, you, I mean, well, here's the thing. I mean, you, there is a remake reboot of, technically the British version of the show mm. 
that's being developed. I don't know that it's in full production yet or anything like that. That's being developed by uh, Peacock, the new mm-hmm. universal streaming service. And <clears throat> so I don't know how that affects things at this point in time. My feeling is because there's just all legal stuff. And again, you know, we for years, because we've been absolutely open to it and we looked into, can we do this ourselves? Can we have Peter write it and you yeah. know take it over and, or, or whatever? And so we've explored a lot of angles with it. And, you know, there's the legal questions for a long time of who owned the rights. And that took a long time to figure out. And, you know, we found out that, you know, it went back to the BBC or Channel 4 in in England. Russell Davies first started the British version. And then they sold it off to a rights house to get some money for, for their network. And that's where this writer up in Canada had his team kind of just eh, go look for some properties that might be available. And they saw Queer as Folk in this, you know, up for sale essentially, and they bought it, you know, uh, for whatever amount, I don't know what it was, but so they got the rights at least to the British version. It's still a little foggy as to what showtime, because again, the British is different from the U S different characters, all that kind of stuff. So I'm not sure what, uh, legally Showtime has rights to as far as the characters and stuff. So if they still own rights to the character names, then it's a question of, you know, you do a new show with a different title, right? right? Mm-hmm. So if you, if, if we're still allowed to use, if you know, Showtime is still allowed to use the characters, then it's kind of up to them, you know, and to do like what they're doing with the L word, you know? And, yeah. um, and again, the biggest thing to be quite honest, because I know, from what I understand, like Showtime did bandaid around maybe three, four summers ago. It got up to some level of executives at Showtime where they did talk about it and they just felt like the numbers weren't there. So it's, you know, this is what's challenging and this is what's hard to say to the fans we have because the fans are so, that we have are so devoted, right? Yeah. And it grows in its way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we find new ones all the time. And it's hugely international as well, too. I mean, from China and Russia and Japan and Australia and all throughout Europe. I mean, uh, the universality of the fan base is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, but sadly, I think what keeps happening, and you know, I'm so grateful for everyone who does it, but the past way things have happened is that you know, someone thinks they've come up with the idea for the first time mm-hmm. on Twitter, right? And they're like, hey, guys. Yeah. <laughs> we need to get a, a reboot of Queer as Folk. Let's start a petition. Does this sound familiar? Uh-huh. Yes, very. And it's wonderful and it's very touching. Mm-hmm. And they get like 200 signatures. And it's the same 200 people. Yeah. And they send that off to Showtime. And Showtime's like, we're not spending millions of dollars for 200 people. Right. You know, so, you know, unfortunately what it needs and how this happens, I don't know, is like how, you know, again, like we did this event back in May, this live stream event um, for the 20th anniversary to raise money for Centerlink. <clears throat> and we live streamed from my little, on this computer yeah. in my little apartment here in Brooklyn. And we live streamed for four and a half hours and it was amazing. And we had about 14,000 people, watching it live at various points, the live stream around the world. Mm -hmm. And then I think it got up, you know, like a week later, I think another 15 or so watched it, you know, up on YouTube. So 
again, so that's like about 30,000 people. And we did our best to get the word out about it as much as we could through social media, et cetera. And we actually had a really extraordinary ad, uh, a PR guy who volunteered and helped us get in People Magazine and Entertainment, like all of these online things to spread word about it. So that was probably the biggest crowd we've gathered, I feel like, for a while. And even with that, like 30,000 people, it's still not enough for a network or a producer to feel like, yeah, this is a viable thing to want to go ahead with. So the biggest thing I think that can happen is somehow getting some kind of groundswell uh, where, you know, again, even Netflix, you know, at a, after a certain point in time, they had us on there for a long time and then they, they took us off. It all comes down to numbers for people. And that's the thing, like, I don't know how you do that. I don't know how, you know, because social media, the bubble can be rather small sometimes, you know, I mean, I haven't really been on Twitter for, for months now, mostly just because I want to remain sane and until yeah. we get through this I election. I just, I just can't go near there. It's too toxic. So, but prior to that, you know, for me to send out word or something, you know, even if I retweet a petition or something like that, you know, I have 20,000 followers, but generally only 1% of them do anything when you tweet something, like actively do something. Mm-hmm. So, Again, that doesn't kind of build those numbers. So I, I I don't have an answer, sadly. I don't know, but that's what it comes down to for anybody. They want to know, are enough people going to watch this thing mm-hmm. for us to take the risk? And um, and it's that thing of like, how do you get all those fans? I know there's mil- there are millions of fans yeah. of the show. Yes, absolutely. Right? Yeah. That's the tricky thing. Like, it's not that it's, I know we have more than, 30,000 fans throughout the world, you know, millions of people this show. And I, because I meet new ones every single day of all ages who say to me, that show changed my life. How do you get word out to all of them? Like, if you want to see this show back because it's needed more than ever right now, you need to speak up and sign this. I don't know how, you know, how you make that happen. It's that, um, it's that catch 22 of something, especially like Twitter. I'm sorry if this is feeling very. No, no, no it's great. Please. Good information. Yeah, I love it. Despondent. But, you know, there's a catch 22 of social media where, in order to be, you know, as an actor, say, uh, and I just know this because I've helped friends get on Twitter and I've helped friends get on different parts of social media because they're like, I know you're on it, you know, early on. And they would be on, like a friend of mine, my friend Jim O'Hare, who was on Parks and Recreation. And when I, you know, he was still kind of new on that show and I was kind of an early go-getter on Twitter. And he's like, you're doing great. Could you show me how to use it and all this kind of stuff? And I said, sure. And I said, you help him set up his account and this is what you do and this is how you use it. And because he was currently on a show that was on NBC and was a huge hit, uh, I remember I got to a point where I was, I was about to get my 5,000th follower. I'm mm. so excited. And I was like, who's it going to be? Who's going to be number 5,000? I'm going to give you a special shout out. I was so excited. And I finished writing that tweet. And this was literally maybe two weeks after I'd helped Jim out. I said, I wonder how Jim is doing. I went over to check his account. And he already had like 55,000. <laughs> wow. Because he's actually, you know, when you're on a show, like that's when you oh, who's that person? And you start following them. So it's this weird thing of like, you need Twitter to help you get uh, a television gig, but you can't really get anywhere on Twitter without having a television gig. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing with us because most of us are not current. Like Peter's currently involved with things with the Fosters mm-hmm. and Good Trouble and things like that. So he's been able to continue to build his profile there. But for me, like uh, 
it's hard for me to do that. And again, that makes it hard for me to get word out to a wider audience of people. So short of getting someone, you know, getting George Takei or someone who has millions of followers to somehow rally people to the cause, which maybe that's the way you go, like finding somebody who, you know, you find out that Taylor Swift is actually secretly a queer folk fan and uh, yeah. he wants to fight to get the show back on the air. It needs that, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, short of that, I just don't know how you get enough people to put pressure on some production studio for them to realize this is economically a smart move for us to make. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's like, you know, we know the numbers will show up, but we just have no way to prove that exactly. they will, that they'll How be there. Exactly. Right. And that's what it takes these days. And that's, yeah, that's going back to, you know, a few years back when, I don't know if you remember the Veronica Mars mm-hmm. movie kind of thing, where yes. they were one of the early adopters of, I think it was Kickstarter they used and they raised like millions of dollars in a few days because they kind of got fans, fans of the show, and, and the hundreds of thousands of them donated money, and they raised, I think, it was something like two or three million dollars in a week, and they got a movie made because right. of that. You know, so it would take something like that either for us to do it, you know, independently or to convince a network that there's numbers there. But it takes that volume of people, and again, to get word out to people, it really is. It's a thing where how, however many followers you have. One percent will actually do what you're wanting them to do. So know that, like, you're not going to get twenty thousand people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're going to get one percent of them will actually click a button and do something. Right. So, so however many people you feel like you need to sign that petition or do whatever, you need ten or twenty or more fold of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. True. Um, well, what you did give us in the form of a reunion in um in May was amazing and great. Um so thank you and the rest of the cast and crew for making that happen. Absolutely. Uh you know, it's a great event for a very great and worthy cause. You know, that's still the truth for a lot of teens who come out or get out it to their family. They have nowhere mm-hmm. to go. And so Um, I love that you guys chose that organization. Um, But with that, so after watching the reunion, it it left me feeling like weirdly emotional. It's almost like you've been (laughs) at summer camp with your friends and then came home and uh, yeah, (laughs) felt very emotional. But anyway, it led me to go watch Adoptable, which because I just wanted to see more of you guys and absolutely (laughs) loved it. Um, I recommended it to several friends and then one in particular, she called me after watching it and she was like going off because of the way it ended (laughs) (laughs) but that cliffhanger there so i now lay that blame at your feet sir (laughs) proud proud of that thank you yeah and are you still shopping that around um yeah we're, we're still shopping it around i mean it's it's getting a little bit to the point now because it's uh four years since we finished making it okay. where again like even to get back into the second season now we're all a little bit older and you know how to yeah. get back together um i mean i already dyed my hair for when we shot the first one <laughs> so uh which i'm happy to do again but uh uh yeah i'm still i'm still hoping i still believe in the show i still really love it but i'm also uh wise enough to understand that there's also a priority shift, a very, very necessary priority shift in what stories need to be told right now. Mm-hmm. And that's what's hard. And that's where I'm trying to make some peace that it may be, you know, it's probably not the right time to uh, continue the story of some 
middle-aged white dudes. Yeah. Well, let's talk on that. Let's talk on that a little bit before we have to end here. Um, Just about advocacy. You know, I have a friend who she said that because of quarantine and everything that's going on, there's no reason for anybody to not be educated because there's so much going on and there's so many new resources that have been put out there. So can you just kind of talk about just your advocacy and, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, that's a great way to phrase it. And it's really true that there is really no excuse right now. We have, you know, the whole world, but especially our country in so many ways has been put on pause. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what's leading to the volume of protests and protesters, uh, the, ability for people to get out and do these things is that you have time to reflect. Like we're too busy. Usually we're just on the treadmill, right? We're just trying to keep going. And we know this, we know this shit is out there. We know we have, you know, an inherent plague of Mm -hmm. racial and social and economic injustice and inequalities in this country, but we don't have time. Some of us do and try to like, through a bullhorn say, Hey, stop, pay attention. Mm -hmm. But everyone's like, I I can't, I got that subway's coming. I got to get going. Mm -hmm. Right. And now you have to stop and look. And obviously a lot of people are very uncomfortable with what they see. Mm -hmm. It's angering them on the other side of the equation, but it's like, you have to, you have to stand up and it's, we're, we are never going to live up to what we could be it starts by educating your friend, like you're, like you're doing, educating your friends and talking to them and, and saying, hey, have you read this book? Start thinking in a different way. You know, again, like I think you or your friend was saying, Michelle, like there's opportunity here. For me, like I do my best to be optimistic about this stuff. Yeah, I love all of that. That was a very important detour. I'm glad we took it. Yes, <laughs> no, it was great. But uh, with that, you know, sometimes you can get so bogged down by the real issues of life. So it's good to have some escapism. So I know that there's um, the event, the Back to Babylon event was rescheduled for next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that, that correct? And you'll be, you'll be at that, right? Yes, in London. Yeah, next year. So I think that was going to have been in November or December of this year. So then they've made it now. They rescheduled for, I think, Halloween next year. So mm-hmm. hopefully, okay. you know, we're all we have a nice virus, uh, vaccine rather, and we can all gather again and yes. see human beings face to face. The conventions are always fun. I always like doing them. And, uh, and what I realized, you know, we've done a number of them now really since I think like since 2012 or so is one of the first ones we did in Germany. And what you realize after a few of them, that oddly it has very little to do with us in a lot of ways. It really becomes this thing of, fans who have essentially been pen pals of each other through social media or whatever, they just want to get together and meet each other and talk like, you know, and it's, it's like summer camp. And I think one of the last ones I did, I remember, you know, we had like a special VIP thing where we would go and sit at a table while some people were having lunch and they didn't talk to me at all. They were all like duck, 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 with each other, you know, <laughs> yeah. I realized like, oh, we're just kind of the excuse for them all to get together, uh, which is great. And that's lovely. You know, it's it's the beautiful thing about the show that it is. It's continues to spread love and brings community together. And again, they came for the queer. They stayed for the folks. And now they've found their <laughs> own folks. That's, that's great. Well, um, I guess to to finish off, what do you see as the legacy of the show or what do you hope the legacy is for the work that you put in there? 
I hope the legacy is that it people look back at it because I feel like there's been a little bit of backsliding. I hope it it keeps three-dimensional portrayals of gay characters on television and films in the forefront to where, you know, they're not just clowns and eunuchs anymore, that, that people see in creating things. And when you're representing for the LGBTQ plus community out there, they want to see themselves as people, you know, and uh, I hope the show continues to do that for those who go back and look at it again, go like, oh my God, this is, you know, oddly, sadly, still so (laughs) different from what we're seeing now. And maybe it inspires new writers to go and create their own things and, you know, do like what Peter's doing out there, you know, creating stories about gay people that, or stories about people who happen to be gay, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) And that's uh, and that's it. So I, I think that's mostly it. And and then the thing that it did from the beginning, you know, is that you get rid of phobias by get, getting rid of ignorance. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I hope, you know, it continues to be a means for people if they have people in their lives who don't understand them being gay or queer or what have you, that they can show them this show and help them understand, oh, okay you're going to be all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Scott, again, thank you so much uh, for been, being oh, here. It's, it's been, been a pleasure. more than we yes. even hoped it would be. Um, uh, we hope that sometime down the line, you'd be willing to join us again. Sure, um, of but uh, yeah. Well, thanks yeah, I mean, for doing I'm this saying. and thank you for, you know, continuing the, uh, the lifespan of, of our yeah. little, of our little creation. It's very, like I said, it's very heartwarming that the show still matters to so many people. And I appreciate you enjoying the show enough that you wanted to do this. Absolutely. We're part of the folk as well. So <laughs> yes, you are. You're definitely part of the folks. Absolutely. For sure. So thank you for doing it. And thanks for everyone for listening. I hope, uh, I just hope you have the greatest success with it. Thank, thank you. you so appreciate much, that. All right. Bye. Stay safe and healthy and well, please. Same to you. Exactly. <laughs> Go walk your dog. Yes. I will. Bye. Have a good <laughs> one. Legs are crossed. Okay. Bye, guys. Thank you.